The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Oh, I want to encourage you now to open with me to the book of Genesis. As we open up God's word together, let's turn to Genesis and chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Last Sunday, we began a, a new sermon series called Faith of Our Father, as we're going to be looking at the narrative of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Last week, we were in chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, and the first couple words of uh, chapter 12. Uh, and what we're doing today is we're diving in now to chapter 12 as we begin to unpack the life of Abraham, the faith of our father Abraham. Now before I read the text and before I make a few other comments, I got a really, really important email and I wanted to share it with you because it is deeply significant and relevant to actually this text of Scripture. And uh, it went like this. Calvary's greetings to you. I am Mrs. Ledede Dane, an aging widow suffering from long-time illness. I am currently admitted in private hospital in Abidjan, which is a French Ivory Coast African country. I have some funds that I inherited from my late loving husband, Mr. Patrick Dane, the sum of U.S. $5.5 million, all of which he deposited in a bank here. And I need a very honest and God-fearing person that can use these funds for God's works. And 15% of the total funds will be yours for compensation for doing this work. Please, if you would be able to use these funds for the Lord's work, kindly reply to me, your sister in the Lord, Ladede Dane. I hope you delete these emails, okay? But it sounds too good to be true, right? And of course, that's because it is. Right? All these things are scam. Your email's full of them. So is mine. Whoever Ledede is, I don't want 15% of her money, $825,000, because it's not real. Nevertheless, sometimes things seem too good to be true. And there is a temptation, I think, when we open up the Bible and we read about some of these things, especially things in the Old Testament, they might seem or appear to be to us too far removed, too far-fetched, or perhaps even too good to be true in such a way that we dismiss them and say, you know, that's the Old Testament. Besides, we live in this day and age, and this doesn't really matter. What we're reading about today in the book of Genesis, uh, if you put together a, a biblical timeline, is something in the realm of 4,000 years ago. And there is this real temptation living in 2019 to say, what in the world do events 4,000 years ago have anything to do with me and relevance to my life? That's a tempting question, especially when things seem to be, you know, a little far-fetched. Well, I think we'll find together this morning that what God says to Abraham, at this point, Abram, is so drastically relevant to us that we can see not only some immediate lessons some real important takeaways for our lives, but we begin to see the unfolding of the greatest story that's ever been told, the story of the gospel of God's grace. And we see it in the life of Abraham. And today, we are seeing God's promises to Abraham, promises that seem to be too good to be true in such a way that we would be tempted to think that they are illegitimate, but in fact, they are the real deal and deeply significant for us. And so, Let's pray before we hear God's word and ask his blessing upon it and then hear it from Genesis and chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, with your word open before us, 
we confess that we are your people. That you have called us by your own spirit to be your sons and daughters. So we pray, Lord, that as we do something of tracing our family history back to Father Abraham, that you would help us to see his life and to see how it points us to the Lord Jesus. Lord, come and rest upon our hearts and minds to give understanding to the Bible this morning. Teach us, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Genesis in chapter 12, and we'll be reading the first nine verses of chapter 12. This is the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May he write its truth upon our hearts today. And let's keep our Bibles open to this this story, which is maybe a familiar story, but one I think we'll find great richness in this morning. We have begun, as I said, uh, this series of looking at the life of Abraham, trying to understand who he is and his faith and how it, it underscores the unfolding story of God's salvation that he brings to us, culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are finding this morning uh, this massive shift of direction in the book of Genesis. God's purposes for the world are not going to be defeated. He has a plan. He has grace to show to a man and to his family. And that plan of grace is the unfolding story of the entire Bible culminating in Jesus Christ. And we are looking here at its very beginning. Its significance of its roots are deeply important. And this beginning of God's redemptive plan at work in the world is found in the life of this one man. And it begins with this call. And so we're going to break this text down into just three sections. And I apologize for not having an outline for you this morning. But those three sections are first, God's call. We're going to look at God's call in verse 1. Secondly, God's promises in verses 2 and 3. And also in verse 7, and then we're also going to look at the obedience of the man of God in the rest of the text. So God's call, God's promise, 
and the obedience to this God who calls and promises. Now, right away, I want you to notice that this begins with a command. This text in verse, chapter 12 and verse 1, the Lord said, last week we looked at how this was this stunning call out of, out of nowhere, it seems, that the Lord is going to speak to humanity, this sinful and fallen humanity, this 20th generation from Adam, this man Abram, and God is going to speak to him. But it doesn't begin with some introduction. It doesn't begin with background information or context. When God speaks to Abram, it begins with a command, go. And if you notice in the text, this is not a suggestion. Go is an imperative. It's a command, do this, go. This introduction that Abram experiences is an introduction to a God who commands. A God of authority. This is what he says again, verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now remember, at the end of chapter 11, we saw that Abram is the son of Terah, and Abram had already experienced something of an uprooting of his life when his father, Terah, just up and decided to move from Ur to Canaan, but he doesn't actually go all the way to Canaan. He stops at Haran, and there they stay. Chapter 11, verse 31 says, they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. And so when God calls to Abram, he lives in this land of Haran. Now he's already left his childhood home, the home he grew up in probably, the Ur of the Chaldeans. And the Lord says to Abram, it's time to go again. It's time to move. It's time to go from Haran to where? Now, when you look at the end of chapter 11, the last time Abram was on the move, when he left Ur with his father Terah, Terah said, hey, you know, son, we're going to Canaan. He set out from Ur to Canaan with knowledge that this is where we were going. He doesn't get to Canaan. He stops at Haran. But nevertheless, when he left his home, he left with the knowledge of the destination. Okay? You ever throw your kids in the car and where are we going? Don't worry about it. Right? We're just going. Don't ask too many questions. When God calls Abram, this time to uproot, leave your country, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, it is with no knowledge of the destination, and it is also with no explanation of the purpose. Go to the land that I will show you. The command precedes the explanation. As if maybe we could anticipate Abram saying, uh, why? Or who says? Or what's the point? The answer is, I've commanded you, go. And go you shall. Isn't that really something, I think? That God's call comes before his explanation. That's a very quick point of application, I think, that we can take from that. That there are times and seasons of our lives into which God calls us and for which we have no understanding of what he's doing. It might not even have been your idea. You might be totally opposed to it, but you get the, the, the inkling perhaps from the Spirit who is impressing upon you to do this, and it might go against everything in your nature, but God is calling you. God's call sometimes comes before his explanation. And we see that in the life of Abraham. Abraham 
Leave your kindred and your father's house. Signifying all levels of safety and security in the ancient Near East, this agricultural world. Leave your safety and your security, your kindred, your father's house, and the land that you have lived on to a land that I will show you. Come out from everything that you know and have known and separate yourself for my purposes in a land that I will show you. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? When he says in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. The Lord is calling to Abram saying, go to where I will show you. Abram, follow me. And really the the interesting thing about this is that we want to ask all kinds of questions, don't we? Well, what in the world was, what was he thinking and how did he make his plans? And there's all kinds of logistics involved in, in uprooting and all sorts of things like that. Maybe Abram was asking, you know, why should I altogether? Because the God who calls, we see here, not only the God who calls, but he is also the God who makes these almost unthinkable promises. So we see God's call in verse 1, but the God who calls is the God who promises. And this is really the bulk of the significance of this text here in verses 2 and 3. And really we sneak in some of verse 7 as well. God has called Abram, but he has called him for a very specific purpose. And we see what they are here in verses 2 and 3 and 7, God's promises. We begin to see what God is up to in this fallen world, this This world that's been cursed by sin, God has a plan. He has a purpose. And that plan is as old as eternity, but we don't know that at this point. But we know that it involves this one man and this one man's family. And it involves this glorious promise. And I want us to see actually that the promise that God makes to Abram is really actually six promises that are knit together into one promise that we call, and maybe this language is familiar to you, perhaps it's not, but all of us should learn it. We use this language of the covenant of grace. God's promise, that's what the word covenant means, the the promise of God's grace. We speak of the covenant of grace that God makes with Abraham, but that one promise is really the the summation of six different promises, and I, I want us to see them each Individually, in verses 2, 3, and 7, there are six promises. Maybe you can pick them out easily, but the significance of them is really what we want to see together. The first one is in verse 2. It's the promise that God makes to make Abram, it says, a great nation. A great nation. Now, there is... There are at least two points of irony in this, of course. One is obvious and one is not so obvious. Back in chapter 11 and verse 30, we are told that Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren. She has no child, okay? Moses goes into detail there in verse 30 as if barrenness is not enough of an explanation. He is emphatically saying she is barren, they have no children. And here is God saying, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And there's no kids. Also, Abram's name actually in Hebrew means exalted father. And at this point, he's also 75 years old. The exalted father with no children who is 75 years old and he and his wife have not borne any children. No prospect of children. And 
when we think of this, okay, this, this is a motif that runs all throughout the scriptures of barrenness and no children, okay? But when you intersect this, don't try and give God the creator a biology lesson here. Which is perhaps maybe what we're wondering Abram had on his mind here. But God says, Abram, from you a great nation will come. And what this is, is a promise of seed, promise of children, this promise of a nation. You will have an inheritance of generations that will call you father. 75-year-old childless Abram. Secondly, God says to him, I will bless you. Now, when you're reading this, this text, this, this word blessing and bless, it's, it's over and over and over again. It's repeated. There's a lot of blessing language here. And that's because God is doing something now through Abram that is going to be in contrast to what Adam has done. Adam brought curse, the curse, into and onto the world. And through Abraham, God is going to bring blessing. The contrast of cursing and blessing. This human race that has been cursed and fallen into sin, God takes Abram from this cursed world and says to him, blessing will come to you and from you far as the curse is found. That the line of covenant promise will run through you. That's what the first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about. That God sustains humanity through this promised line. Adam and Seth and Noah, and Shem, and Terah, and now Abram. Abram, from you, the line of promise is going to continue. The third thing that he promises here, not only I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, he also says, thirdly, I will make your name great. I will make your name great. Now that might seem you know, interesting or contrasting perhaps because you know, we say, oh, I thought God was all about making his name great and exalting his name. What's the point of him saying to Abram, Abram, I will make your name great? Well, this is another example of the contrast of what God is doing in Abram and through Abram than has been done in the past. By blessing Abram and making his name great, he is holding Abram over against the narrative of chapter 11 in which humanity built a tower and said, we will make our name great. And God scattered those sinful purposes. You remember that? But then turns around in chapter 12 and says, Abram, I will make your name great. Because why? God exalts the humble. And puts down the proud. Humbles the proud, exalts the humble. Abram, I will make your name great. God alone is great, but he is the one who can make the name of any man great. And he says to Abram, I will make yours great. The fourth promise is there. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. In verse 3, he says that. That is to say, God is going to divide humanity from those who bless Abram and the God of Abram and those who reject Abram and the God of Abraham. We see this plainly here, that those who bless the God of Abram and Abram himself will be blessed. The fifth is the promise of blessing that comes through you, Abraham, will be for all the families of the earth. End of verse 3. In you, Abram, childless 75-year-old Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That the blessings of Abraham are to flow into the nations. This is the, the heartbeat of the God of Abraham. 
Now, this is one of the most important principles in all the Bible. That God is going to call Abram to constitute a nation, and we're going to call that nation Israel in the Bible. But the whole point of Israel was to be the funnel of blessing to all nations. That the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, is not just the God of Israel and Abraham, but he is also the God of the Gentiles, the God of us, not just the God of the Jewish people, so that those who are not originally included in the people of Israel might know this God has their own God. Now, there's a million things that could be said about that with relevance to biblical missions and evangelism, but that's another subject altogether. But the sixth promise, it's actually, it's hinted at in verse 1, but it becomes more clear in verse 7. The sixth and final promise of this covenant of grace is when God says, to your descendants, I will give this land. In verse 1, it's the land that I will show you. And when Abram arrives there in verse 7 in the land of Canaan, God says, I will give you this land. Now, that's the land of Canaan. If you've ever wondered, you know, why do we call it the promised land? It's, it's for this reason. Because God said, Abram, this land will be yours and I'm making you this promise. This will be your land and the land of your people. So those six promises... I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed and to you I shall give you this land. And it all might seem too good to be true for lots of reasons. But we want to see in verses 4 through 9 that God has called and God has promised and we want to see the obvious Result of this, asking the question, what does Abram do? And verse 4, as clearly and as plainly as verse 1 introduces the idea of the Lord calling out to Abraham, so clearly and simply does verse 4 say, he went. Again, without a lot of explanation, I mean, there's some logistics here, but not very much. The text doesn't tell us how he broke the news to his wife, Sarah. We're moving again. Why? Well, I don't know. God told me. And here we go. It doesn't say his own thoughts or reflections on the matter. He doesn't even know where he is going. All the Lord told him is that where you are is not where you're going to be. And I won't tell you where you're going until you get there. Walk. Until I say stop. Now, again... To seemingly reasonable people, this might be you know, beyond the scope of reasonable requests from an almighty God. Of course not, though, right? The Lord said to Abram, go. And Abram said, yes, Lord. And he went. And as abruptly as the Lord spoke, so clear is Abram's obedience, he went. Now, there's several things in this that I want us to see. And, and to them, we can unpack some deeply significant truths for our Christian lives. Because you, you understand the point of this text is not to say, hey, you're Abram. Be Abram. That's not the point. But from Abram's life, we see some deeply significant things. First of all, his obedience here of God's servant. Look at verse 6. and We find, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. 
Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram arrives. And when he finally gets there, he's told this land, the land of Shechem, near the oak at Morah. Now, again, as I said, Moses, Moses writes the Pentateuch for us under the inspiration of the Spirit. And when Moses is writing these things and giving us these geographic details, it might be easy of us to assume that these are just some incidental details that don't really carry any significance. But in verse 6, when it says Abram passed through the land of Canaan to the place at Shechem, so Shechem would be a, a sub-identity of location inside of Canaan, it is deeply important, actually, because this place of Shechem is going to come back in Israelites' history, the future history of Israel, as a very meaningful place. But right now, he's in the land of Canaan, and the Canaanites live in Canaan, and the Canaanites are... Pagan idolaters. Just like Abram was when he lived in Or and he worshipped the moon, the Canaanites worshipped the false god Baal, but particularly he comes to this place, this tree, it says, to the oak of Morah. And if you notice, there's a, there's a, a footnote under the, the word oak there. And if you scan down at the bottom of your Bible, you can see that it also means terebinth. But it could also be translated as the oak of the teacher. That's what that word means. The oak of the teacher, the tree of the teacher. Okay? Now, historians and archaeologists are almost entirely agreed upon this fact. That when Abram arrived in Canaan to Shechem, to the oak of this tree, potentially, the Terebith tree, that it was probably one of the most sacred sites for Canaanite religion where those people who would claim inspiration from their deities, from their gods, would come to this oak at Mora, the oak of the teacher, to claim inspiration from their false gods and make declarations about pagan religion. So Abram has intersected perhaps one of the most important sites of Canaanite paganism. And it is there that he arrives, and then in verse 7 it says, he built an altar to the Lord. Now, are you holding together the tensions in that? Abram has just arrived at perhaps one of the most important shrines of Canaanite, Canaanite paganism, and there he builds an altar to the Lord. Now, what is that saying? That Abram has not come into the land of Canaan to assimilate himself into the Canaanite religion. Abram has not come to look like the Canaanites, worship like the Canaanites, act like the Canaanites, or do any other things like that. He's come to do what? Worship the one true living God who has called him to this land, which is going to be his land. Abram declares that Yahweh, the Lord, the one true and living God, the God of the covenant, is the only God that there is. And in the midst of this pagan shrine of the oak of the teacher, he says there is but one God. His dominion is all the earth. Now, tell me, tell me if that's not relevant to us. The declaration of the sovereignty of the one true and living God over against the idols of the earth. Okay? We don't live in Canaan. And there may or may not be trees in the United States that people go to for inspiration for their paganism. But don't mistake yourself into thinking that paganism isn't alive and well in the United States. That idolatry isn't alive and well in the United States. It just looks more friendly, doesn't it? 
It's all the things that draw us away from Christ. It's all the things that claim your obedience and your time and your affections other than the one true and living God. And they look like so many different things. And you can put your own names to them because you know them. But the question that Abram is answering in the negative is, will you bow down to these other gods? And he is emphatically saying no. Now notice with this that as Abram moves around, he's continuing to build these altars. So he moves from Shechem in verse 8 to go up into the hills to the east of Bethel. And again, these, these names are not incidental details. Bethel is the place where Jacob is going to have that dream later on about that ladder. But these are the places that Abram comes to. But in verse 8 it says, And there, when he comes east of Bethel, that he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is continued obedience, continued worship. Abram saying to the Lord, Lord, you called me here. I have no clue what I'm doing here. But you said to come and, and here I am. And I am looking to you with trust and with faith and with hope. But I'm, I'm doing what you say. And there is, again, this detail in the text that if we should pick up on it, it becomes deeply significant. As he is going to these places and building these altars, do you notice how he travels? In verse 8, it says that after he's east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel, he has to make his camp everywhere he goes, right? Because he's transient. He's a pilgrim. He's on the way. He doesn't have a permanent home. He's have to pitch his tent everywhere he goes. But everywhere he goes, he builds an altar, right? And the altar stays. But he has to dismantle that tent and move on to go build another altar. And what is that saying? It's a declaration of the, the, the permanence of the worship of the one true and almighty God. When our lives are transient and passing away and fleeting and ephemeral and temporary, this God is forever. And he's to be worshipped forever. Even the first man, Abram, who sees this tells us this. What will fade and what will remain forever. Abram is a picture of the pilgrim worshiper and the eternal God that has made glorious promises to him. And we see his obedience and his declaration of worship here. And let's not mistake the fact that this obedience that Abram offers is an obedience in light of what is absolutely impossible. Isn't it? In the sight of man. In light of all that's around him, this doesn't make sense. Because again, the whole seed promise, 75-year-old, no kid, barren wife, doesn't make sense. But the way the book of Hebrews explains this to us in chapter 11, of course, is that Abraham was looking to a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker was God. He is moving forward in the obedience of faith. It had to be faith that drew Abraham forward because this man who had nations promised to him had no children and the land that he was promised to receive, did you catch this detail in verse 6? Look at verse 6. The land that he's told you're going to have this, other people already have it. The Canaanites already lived there. And God said to Abram, no, this is yours. And Abram said, no, there they are. It's theirs. It's already occupied. And maybe Abram wondered, are you sure about all this? And here's the point. Very clearly, it seems to be the case that God likes to prepare us 
to receive his greatest work when the circumstances couldn't be more difficult. That God prepares us oftentimes to be a part of his greatest work when the circumstances couldn't be more difficult. That makes us want to say, are you sure about this? And the Lord is saying, yes, watch, watch me work. He says, you obey. You do what I have called you to do. You trust me and do what I say. And then watch me work. It might seem impossible to you. It might seem, I mean, deniably that it could ever be a reality. And God says, no, watch me work. So that at the end, the only option is for you to be able to say, this was of the Lord. And it certainly wasn't of me because I could have never done this in my own strength. I don't know what you think about in your life that makes you recall times of just overwhelming faithfulness of God that you would have never orchestrated if you would have had it your own way. And yet you look back and see what he has done. And it is supposed to incline our hearts to trust him more into the future. The story of Abraham here in chapter 12 is, yes, absolutely and undeniably the story of faith and obedience of Abraham, who is the man of faith. The Bible calls him that, the man of faith. But more than Abraham, the story of Abraham is a story about the faithfulness of the God of Abraham. That he called Abram and Abram went and the circumstances were extraordinary. But I want you to see that the circumstances were extraordinary, but Abram's obedience actually wasn't that extraordinary. He just did what he was told to do. God said go and he went. Now you might say, yeah, but the circumstances, the logistics of it all. No, 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 no. God said go and he went. God said do this and he said, yes, Lord. And I want us to understand from this that obedience to God is so much more about ordinary obedience than it is about extraordinary, flashy obedience. The most important obedience that you have to God is the regular, ordinary, non-flashy, moment-by-moment obedience in which you say that this is my God and I trust him. Yeah, there might be special moments in your life that are major declarations of that, but every day you wake up and decide who you're going to worship. What do you value most? What do you love the most? What will you do with your life? Everyday things that don't seem so extravagant are actually perhaps the most important moments of obedience. Now, what that means here in application of this is that God is, give you some assurance from this, God is most likely not going to call you to uproot your life and move to Canaan. So you can just stop worrying that, about that, right? He's not likely going to call you on a pilgrimage like he did Abram. Perhaps he won't call you to go into seminary or become a missionary, although he may. He may or may not call you to be an officer in this church. He may or may not call you to teach Sunday school or to start some new ministry or initiative to reach our community. He may or may not do those things. But what he is calling you to do, without question, is respond to his word and worship him. And that's exactly most fundamentally what Abraham does here. Respond and worship. You might not think that your presence on the Lord's Day is the most extravagant act of obedience in your Christian life. 
That's because it's probably not, but it might be the most important. It might be the most important. The regular, ordinary, faithful obedience of responding to God's word and worshiping him. Now here's, here's the conclusion to this point, even though we're just at the beginning of the story. I was talking with Beth about this uh, because she's got a great passion for uh, Sunday school and we read an article together about uh, the ways in which sometimes Sunday schools teach children incorrectly and teach them just to be kind of nice kids who do nice things, right? The point of Abraham's story is not be Abraham, be like Abraham. That's not the point. He's not the hero of the story. Abram has to worship at an altar because Abram's a sinner. And he knows that he has to make a sacrifice in order to come into the presence of the Almighty God. Abram comes to God by way of a sacrifice, the offering of another in his place. That's the point of all the altars. But the story of Abram, okay, so if you've not, if you've not heard what I've said thus far, just hear this. That the story of Abraham is all about preparing the way for the greater son of Abraham. The story of the son who dwelt in heaven, who God called to a far country. A far country in which he had no home and found no welcome. A world that was lost in idolatry and paganism and sin. A world that was cursed. And to this cursed world, the greater son of Abraham traveled in obedience to his father and set up an altar and there made sacrifice. But the sacrifice was not an animal, it was himself. The greater son of Abraham the Lord Jesus Christ, so that through him and through his work, God's promises to Abraham would come true, that the nations would be blessed, that the nations would come to know that they have a God who calls for their obedience and their worship. That's why we can sum up the call of Abraham by saying this, and it sounds unconventional, but familiar. For God so loved the world that he called Abram and began to unfold the greatest story that has ever been told. The coming of the greater son of Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of God's grace to Abram, to the nations, and to you and me. That's why this is so worthy of our study. So may God add his blessing to it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the faith and obedience of Abraham. And, and though, Lord, we certainly can look to him as our example, we also look beyond him to you, you who calls us, you who calls us to worship you, to give you our obedience. And so, Lord, as Abraham did, so too must we worship you, give you our praise and our love and our obedience. Help us to do so, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.